Well, as I mentioned tonight, we'll kind of wrap up our time in the tabernacle story, and uh, we've been we've been in a brief study, and we've been examining how these things in the Old Testament point to Christ and find their fulfillment in Him. But I thought I'd start out. I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and I don't remember all the details, but I do remember this. Uh, why why do you suppose that Jews who follow the Old Testament fail to see the things that we see. For example, we, we've been going through the, the, the tabernacle story and we've been, we've been saying, you know, well, this brazen altar where the sacrifices are, are uh, made, we've been talking about how that this points to Christ and how that this particular thing points to Christ and this particular thing points to Christ. Uh, why, if, if it's so obvious, you know, and it does seem so obvious to us, doesn't it? You know, now you know, we, we look at it and we, we can go to Hebrews and go, well, right there, right there it is. And why, why, why does it seem so obvious to us? But Jews who, who love the Old Testament Scriptures, who follow the Old Testament Scriptures, why do they fail to see this? Why is it so obvious to them? In fact, not only is it not obvious to them, it's just like downright no, no, no. That's just that's not pointing to Jesus. In fact, I want you to I want you to see a couple of verses, or a few verses, in fact, in the, uh, in Second Corinthians. Let's look at this. Paul's writing to the church at Corinthians. He says, "Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was." being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, what does that tell us? There is a, there is a veil, a covering, like, uh, like Larry mentioned, a blinding that lies over the eyes of unbelieving hearts, and it can only be removed by Jesus Christ working through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, it's not because, and I think most of you know this, but it's not not a bad idea to to, to be reminded. It's not that we are more clever than they are, that we, we see things that, you know, of our own ability that they can't seem to see. Um, as, 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 as Paul said, but when one turns to the Lord, when one turns to the Lord, the, this, this blinding, this, uh, this veil is, is lifted. If, if, if it wasn't, if it, really, if, if it was not for this lifting of the veil, we as unbelievers could read what we've been reading in Exodus about the tabernacle story. And, and not only would we probably be bored out of our mind, we would probably not make any connections at all. We'd be like, what? A you know, person would be sitting going, what? I, I don't, I, how do you see that? I don't see that. 
And, of course, they don't. They don't because the veil is there. The veil can only be lifted uh, by turning to the Lord. Now, this mean, what this means is we desperately rely upon the Holy Spirit whose inspiration led to the writing of the New Testament to help us properly understand the meaning of the Old Testament. And so that's what Paul is saying here. We, we, we are desperately in reliance upon the Holy Spirit to help us see these things that we could not see without his aid. And so I just thought we'd you know, bring that up right at the beginning here before we, before we finish up tonight because, again, it can, it can almost seem frustrating. Like, don't you, don't you see that? Don't you see that? You know, uh, you probably had your spouse say before, don't, don't you see this? Don't you see this? And you're like, I can't see it. Uh, my, my wife's great at reading license plates, and I, I can't. I, I, you know, they're already gone down the mile, you know, about a mile down the road before I ever get it. And she says, don't you see that? Don't you see what they're saying in the license plate? Nope, can't see it. Uh, so, you know, we're, we're, able, we're able to see the things that we've been looking at uh, because the veil has graciously been lifted. Now, the tabernacle story that we've been looking at began in Exodus 25. And you'll remember after delivering his people from Egyptian bondage, God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, and let them make a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. And you'll see again the picture. Of a, of a model of the tabernacle. Uh, the tabernacle, again, would be the centerpiece of Old Testament religion for 400 years. Think about that. That's, that's longer than we've been a country. Uh, you know, that's how long that this, this was going to be the centerpiece, uh, you know, the tabernacle, the centerpiece of, um, of their religion for 400 years. Now, you'll next see the next picture of the layout again, uh, entering in, and first thing is sacrifices made, confession made, and then uh, the bronze laver where the priests would, would wash. And, and then last week, uh, well, let's just, let's just we, 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 as we worked our way through, we've been observing each piece of furnishing. And, you know, the brazen altar was first, the bronze basin. Then you enter into that curtain uh, where it's the, the holy place. So the, the out part is the courtyard. Then there's the entrance into the holy place. And remember last week we looked at the table of the bread of presence and the golden lampstand. Now there's only one other piece of furniture in the holy place that is just outside the entrance of the holy of holies or the most holy place. And that is the altar of incense. And you'll see a picture here. Uh, this is just uh, an artist's rendition, of course, uh, of, uh, of, of a priest who is uh, offering incense. And we'll talk a little bit about that. It's, you know, it, it's a pretty, pretty good depiction regarding the size. Uh, the altar of incense was specifically, God gave specific instruction that it be three foot high with a square width of one and one-half foot by one-and-a-half foot. It was built of acacia wood, and it was overlaid with gold. And it also, you'll see the horns. See the horns? Remember, there was the horns on the brazen altar, and now we see the horns on this altar as well. There was uh, the gold rings on the side. You'll see them. Uh, poles are inserted. Uh, also, the poles are made of acacia wood, also overlaid with gold, and they're inser inserted uh, to, to transport 
Again, this, this was part of Israelites' religion for 400 years, and they didn't stay in one place. So there would be times for transportation, and so you can, you can just see uh, those who were carrying this on their shoulders. Aaron, the high priest, is to burn incense on the altar every morning when he comes into the holy place to tend the lamps on the lampstand. So you know, his, his, his activity would be take care of the, the, the lamps on the golden lampstand. We looked at that last week. But also to, um, to burn incense on the altar every morning. Now, I don't, know, um, I, I don't know what kind of incense this was, you know, what, as opposed to what I smell sometimes. I, I don't know. How many of you, you know, y'all know where the Donut King is? Donut King right down the road. Uh, years ago, um, there were some folks, uh, I guess Vietnamese, Chinese maybe, who owned it. And there were many occasions where I walk in, smell incense, and, and buy and get out quick. <laughs> I just overwhelmed with the smell of incense. I couldn't stand the smell of it. Oh my goodness! So I don't, I don't know, I don't know what kind we're looking at here. But I've never been a fan of incense too much. Um, so when, every time I hear that word, I think about that, that those occasions of going in. But um, anyway, I want to hope that this was a, you know, a, a much more pleasant smell of incense, perhaps. But anyway. This means that the holy place, now think about this, when you, you walk into the holy place, you've got the, got the, the, the candles are, are lit, lit the, on the golden candlestick, and um, also it's, it, the room is filled with smoke. It's filled with smoke and the smell of incense anytime the priests are in that room. The obvious question now for us is, what is the significance of this? What is the significance of the altar of incense. And um, we, there's some passages in Leviticus that will, will help us to understand this a little bit better. And he, this is the high priest, he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense. Now, there we go. I, could, I think I could go for that. Sweet incense beaten small and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. Now, that, that, that gives a little insight into uh, the, when it says the cloud, and that's the smoke, okay? The cloud of incense, that's the, that's the smoke that would come from this burning incense. It says that, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat. Now, we'll talk about the mercy seat in just a few minutes. So that he does not die. Hmm. So that the high priest, high priest is in danger of dying in that room. Okay? He's in danger of dying. There's a potential for dying as he's, as he's ministering, as he's serving. Potential. Uh, and the one thing that's going to be protective is, is the, the cloud of, of smoke. Now, next picture you'll see is a picture of a censer. That's uh, uh, that's you know, pretty good image of uh, of what it, it meant when he shall take a censer full of coals. So here, let's let's break this down for just a moment. Before Aaron can enter the most holy place, because he's in the holy place right now, before he can enter into the holy place, he must do what has just been described in the book of Leviticus. Now, recall that. 
going into the most holy place for the high priest was only once a year, and that on the, the day of atonement. And so kind of picture this with me, okay? The room is being filled with the smoke from the burning incense, right? And this smoke provides a veil of some sort, maybe a, a, a screen uh, to protect Aaron from, the, from a direct encounter with the glory of God. That's, that's what God just said in Leviticus. This, this, this cloud is going to serve kind of like a screen uh, to protect Aaron from a direct encounter with the glory of God. Uh, again, hearkening back to the holiness of God. Certain things had to take place before uh, the high priest could just walk right in. Uh, and you'll remember, I think this helps, at the mountain when Israel encountered God back in the early part of the Exodus, God veiled himself with smoke. In Exodus 19 and 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And so we, we, we see this you know, imagery being used again and again throughout the Bible that you know, God, God's surrounding himself like in, in, a, in a veil or a cloud or a, a smoke in, in, order, in, in, order that, in order that we not die <laughs> uh, because of his intense, immense holiness. So that... that we ask, what is the significance of the altar of, of incense? And that's, that's one answer. Um, it, it would provide this, this you know, smoke screen, I guess you might say, to, to protect a high priest from the holiness of God, a direct encounter with the holiness of God. But also, there's, a, there's a, another thing that we can say, and that is we, we should note that incense was symbolic of the prayers of the people of God. We have a number of examples of that, and one of them is in Psalm 141. O Lord, I call unto you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, isn't, isn't that interesting? Um, the psalmist is 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 he's reflecting upon imagery that would take place within the, the tabernacle and by now within the temple, you know. And the, the, these things, these activities going on, the incense being burnt, and uh, the, the, the the incense cloud rising, and then he said, "In the lifting up of my hands is the evening sacrifice." Um, but but our our, our particular focus, let my prayer be counted as incense before you. And then, perhaps the, the one place that we think of the most maybe is in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So, one thing that we can say about the altar of incense, of course, is, is it, it, it in some way provided um, a, the smoke, you know, kind of 
protective cover for the high priest. But another thing that we can say about the altar of incense, that it was a visual symbol to the people of Israel that the priests were offering up their prayers to God in heaven. So we, we've, uh, we've gone through the courtyard. We've gone through the holy place. We've looked at all the furnishings in both areas. And now we get ready to enter into the most holy place. What is it that separates the holy place from the most holy place? Curtain, a veil. Can we, you remember we've encountered three curtains. There's the entrance into the courtyard that has more of an ordinary curtain. And then there's a curtain going into the holy place, which is a bit more elaborate. And then there is a curtain or veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Three veils. And let me call your attention to this verse in Matthew 27 and 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, most of you know by reading that, you know that this is what took place when our Lord was on the cross and declared it is finished. There was a, a, a tearing of, of, of a curtain veil from top to bottom. Now, here's a question, and I, I really hadn't really thought much about this at all. Um, can we be sure which curtain or veil was rent? Now, I think if, um, you know, for me, I, I've, I've always understood it as being the veil or the curtain between the most, or between the holy place and the most holy place. And I think that's probably the most likely scenario. But, get, but get, here, here's, my, here's my point, though. There's nothing in Matthew 27 and 51 that tells us which one. And I, I hadn't thought much about this until I was, um, I didn't bring it in here with me, but it was one of the resources that I've been looking at uh, for the temple and for the tabernacle. And the writer points out that there's nothing in the language here, there's nothing in the original language even that details which veil it is. We've, we've, you know, we've heard teaching, we've heard sermons that tell us that it was the veil between the holy place and the most holy place. And that's the most likely scenario. I mean, it, it certainly makes sense that that is it. The only point I'm trying to make is there's nothing really in Matthew's gospel and, nor any of the other gospels that point to and say it was the curtain. <laughs> it was this particular curtain. And so I just, I just throw that out for you to, to, to think about. But the most likely scenario, it is the curtain that we've just come to that separates the holy place from the most holy place. Uh, and there's some ample reasons to why. But we go inside now, we go through the veil, and we don't, only the high priest once a year goes in. And there's only one piece of furniture in that room, or one furnishing. And what is that? What is that? The Ark of the Covenant. We've now reached the Holy of Holies where we find the most central and holy of the pieces of tabernacle furnishing. All of them we've looked at, all of them have significance, but we have reached what, again, what we would call the most central 
and holy of all of the pieces of tabernacle furnishings. The ark is the focal point of God's presence. The ark of the covenant is God's focal point of his presence. And you're going to see this on the overhead. It's rather a long reading from the book of Exodus chapter 37, but it gives it gives some um, some detail. We'll come back to the, the, the man's name, Bezalel. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Bezalel made the ark of acacia wood. Two cubit and a half was its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And he overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside. Now that might make a distinction between the other pieces. Remember they were overlaid with gold you know, on the outside, that sort of thing. But here we have outside and inside and made a molding of gold around it. And he cast for it four rings of gold for its four feet, two rings on its side and two rings on its other side. And uh, he made poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold and put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark. And he, that's Bezalel, and he made a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half was its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And he um, made two cherubim of gold. He made them of hammered work on the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat, he made the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, with their faces one to another toward the mercy seat were the faces of the cherubim. Um, Bezalel. Um, Bezalel is Israel's leading craftsman. Um, in the passage, we don't see this in the English. We don't see it in the English, in the Hebrew. The passage is in what's called the third person singular, which means when the actual construction of the other items, other, other, other items were constructed, you know, that we've been looking at. When those items are described, the text uses the third person plural, referring to all of the Israelite craftsmen in general. So um, let's take the uh, altar of incense or let's take uh, the, uh, the, 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 the bowl of, uh, of the water. Um, all, when God gave the instruction about that, it was in the third person plural, meaning there would be multiple craftsmen working. But when it, when it comes down to the Ark of the Covenant, um, Bezalel, the leading craftsman, it's, it's written in the third person singular, meaning you know, he was the sole one to, to craft the Ark of the Covenant. I thought that was kind of interesting. These are Again, these are things that you, we can't necessarily see in an English-only translation. We you know, can get help from other, other resources. Uh, again, the size, uh, when he's, he was talking about cubits and stuff, it's three foot nine inches long, two foot four inches wide, covered with gold both inside and out. Uh, the covering, now the covering of the ark is solid gold, and it's called, in the English translation that we use, ESV, it's called the atonement cover. 
but we, we just we just saw, or I should say it, it's called the mercy seat in our English translation, ESV. But it's, it's also known as the atonement cover. On top of the cover, we're told, and you'll see a picture of it here. This will help maybe. Um, those two figures on the top are the cherubim, two golden cherubim facing inward. Okay, They're facing inward, looking down on this cover uh, with their wings spread and overshadowing the cover. And all of this is given specific instructions about how to make this. Now remember the ark. The ark represents the presence of God. And it cannot be touched by anyone except by the high priest who, again, alone once a year will come in and will smear blood. It will come in and smear blood on this mercy seat or atonement cover. Um, it is the source and the center. What, 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 what this cover represents is the source and the center of mercy, God's mercy, due to an atonement that is made, an offering, of an offering, an atoning offering has been made. So this, this lid represents this, the source and the center of, of God's mercy due to an atonement. And so um, what, is all this, what does all this mean? And again, the only reason we can know is because the veil has been lifted. The veil has been lifted and we're able to read the inspired Scripture of the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. And we read things like this found in Hebrews chapter 9. And in the early part of Hebrews chapter 9 verse 5, the writer is describing just what we've been looking at. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. But then later in that same chapter, the writer says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And so what the writer of Hebrews intends for us to see is what we have described in the book of Exodus and Leviticus. What the Holy Spirit would have us to see is that all of this is, has been pointing to and will culminate in the Lord Jesus being a once and for all sacrifice where the high priest would bring in the blood of a, a sacrificial animal and smear it on the mercy seat, um, it would be it would be Christ's own blood, His sacrificial atoning blood, and there would be no more uh, one day a year atonement. There would be no more animals sacrificed because Christ was a once and for all sacrifice. Now, to conclude, let me let me. This is one of the books that I've, I've found helpful throughout all of this. I've got a few, and uh, you, can get really, you can get really overwhelmed because there's a lot of good ones. But this one is entitled God in Our Midst by Daniel Hyde, and it's, um, it's been really helpful. His closing paragraph here, I just want to read to you. It's very brief. And I thought this was striking. 
because we, you know, we, we started all this because we went through a series on the book of Exodus that started back in September of last year, and then we wrapped up, and then we went right into the tabernacle story on Wednesday nights. Here's what Daniel Hyde writes. In conclusion, as we read the book of Exodus, we see that it begins in the darkness of suffering, but it ends in the light of the gospel. It begins with cries to God that seemed unanswered, but it ends with God's answer in his activity among his people. It begins with the seeming absence of God, but it ends with his precious presence among his people in the tabernacle, even as he is among us today. Wow. I love how he puts that. It began. It began this way, but it ends this way. And especially that last sentence. It begins with the seeming absence of God. And that, and, and that was when we start the book of Exodus, you got, you know, where is God in all this? Where, where is he? And the, the Israelites must have been wondering, where is he at? And they cry out and they cry out. So it begins with the seeming absence of God, but it ends with his precious presence among his people in the tabernacle, even as he is among us today in the person of his son and now that his son is ascended in the presence of his spirit that remains among us let's pray our father in heaven i must say that i don't think often enough of the blessing of the veil being removed i don't quite appreciate that like i should when i read second corinthians now i see i see that There was so much more going on when I, by grace, turned to the Lord Jesus. A veil was removed. You did something so kind for us. No wonder we have so many references in the scriptures, especially in the gospels of Jesus opening blinded eyes. No wonder, because the worst blindness, spiritual blindness we faced and When we turned to the Lord Jesus, the veil was removed and we could see. We could see things that we could never have seen on our own. And oh, how beautiful they are. Oh, how beautiful they are. Things that would, without the lifting of the veil, would have left us so confused. We see and the more we look, the more beautiful it is. And so, Lord, we bless you tonight. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, illuminating illuminating the scriptures and inspiring the scriptures, enabling us to to better understand your great salvation and to, to behold the Lord Jesus and to be transformed from glory to glory to glory that we might become more and more like Jesus. So may we keep our eyes upon him. We ask this in his name. Amen.